Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer with the first episode of 2021. What will the year bring? Today, I'm joined by legendary former ESPN host Bob Lee. This is episode nine. From the value of trust in the media to priorities at his former employer ESPN to culture and sports colliding, we start with the way social media has changed the media landscape. I want to start with uh, social media, kind of the double-edged sword of, uh, of Twitter and, and all the other social media outlets that have really overtaken the media or become such a big force in the media. You, you and I had a conversation over email in the uh, BCC uh, interview that we did with the Fourth Watch newsletter, and I, I really liked the way you described Twitter. You said it was a, a petri dish of cancel culture, a uh, window into the barely suppressed partisan soul of so many members of the mainstream media, a vial of nitroglycerin. And 2020 is a landscape on uneven sidewalks and crumbling curbs navigate at your peril, (laughs) which is really the best description of Twitter. That pretty much says it, doesn't it? It does. Drive safely. (laughs) Uh, uh, Let's start there. I want to go with the good news and the bad news about social media. But let's start with the bad news. Uh, Where do you see the media as we enter 2021 related to Twitter, related to social media? Uh, What has it done to the industry that you've uh, spent so much time in? I mean, there was a point a couple of years ago when I was 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 still working in Bristol, Connecticut, where I I thought that certainly our organization, I think they still may, that organization has a handle on 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 breaking news on Twitter. I mean, let's specifically talk about Twitter for the for the time being, since that's Twitter and Facebook is all I know. Looking, you know, in my demographic, um, but it's it's I, I think parallel tracks of 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 the Trump years. And as it got wackier and more unpredictable and uh, and just the natural uh, energy of Twitter just turned it into that to the point where if you're a, if you're a, a, a responsible member of the working media, I mean, I heard your conversation with Ben Smith and talking about the, uh, a journalist, I forget who it was, who, who tries to parse the difference between his Twitter persona and his journalistic persona. Right. And the one thing that I always struggled with 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 and with some colleagues was you know you wouldn't have x hundred thousand or x million twitter followers unless you were standing on a milk carton that you didn't build you know it, yeah. it, it, it's somebody else's platform and so you have to bear that into consideration so now I, it, it's the absolute freaking uh, wild west and, and you know and it reached its nadir or its apex depending on how you want to frame it i think this past year when the, you know the cancel culture just went radioactive not without reason in some cases but i mean the idea that that people could be, you know, digitally tormented and 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 unemployed within a matter of hours, if not days. Uh, it, so it's not gotten any better. It there's that you know I, I think there there there's I, somebody should do a study about the addiction of, of you know I think we're all adrenaline junkies in this business, especially if you work in electronic media. And I think you know the feeling when you're when you're on a story and you're pursuing something and it's good and you're in the moment and, and, and you're on the cutting edge of it and you're trying to do your job well, but you transform that adrenaline addiction over to being on Twitter and say, oh, well, if I tweet this, I'm going to get look at those likes and, <laughs> and 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 retweet numbers. They're just wow, they're they're going up. Not necessarily a good thing, no. and um, you know the human filter is not there. So it's, I, I don't think it's improved. Um, and at the same time, it's all under the umbrella of what's going to happen with you know was it Section two thirty, right? And I'll defer right. to the communications lawyers on this. But I mean, I, 
I know Tucker did a whole thing on Fox the other evening about this. Um, so, you know, what, what, what I've just spent a couple of minutes, you and I talking about, just might, might be almost mooted by some of the things that could be coming down the pike. Yeah, no, it's true. But I, I think what your, your point about the, the, the adrenaline rush of it, it, it's, I wonder, because I've, I've certainly never been in the position that, that you have um, on, on TV and, and sort of, a, you know, an institution at ESPN where you can do a segment that feels really resonant and maybe you get some, you know, in, in the pre-social media days, you get uh, a bunch of emails or maybe even before before that, you got a letter. I don't know, but you, you don't get that same feeling as you put a tweet out and all of a sudden the, the retweets start coming in and it, and it, and it feels, uh, I would imagine that there's, you're resonating in, in a very specific and, and rapid way that you can't get that rush from even doing a segment on TV, even today and getting that same feeling. And I, I wonder if that's kind of led these, these more traditional journalists, you know, in, in some in some instances, and certainly some more independent journalists now, to really embrace this platform in a negative way. Whether it's negative or, I mean, I don't think they think it's negative. Right. I think they think it's positive. I think that they're, they're I think people of all stripes, but primarily on the left, because that's what Twitter is. It's it's you know it's a it's an echo uh, chamber of, of of left of center for the most part. But you know, you're preaching to the choir, and the choir is coming right back at you. Why do you not like that? And yes, there, I think there's an electrochemical, neurological something or other. You know, here my bachelor's degree, I'm putting it to good use here. Um, <laughs> there, there's something there's something in play there. I mean, there's a feeling of like, oh yeah. Wow. And I go back to how many years to the movie uh, broadcast news. I say it here. It comes out there. You could be Albert Brooks sitting at home having a drink and putting words into the mouth of William Hurt. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that there's, there, there's definitely, and, and we talk about it like this personality first delivery vehicle, you, you know, you're talking about like people that are tied to organizations like a CNN or ESPN, but they really can just be their, their own personal brand on those platforms. But I, I also say, because one of the things you mentioned in that, well, scene, they're, yeah. but they're also, they're also now being encouraged in the area of what we used to call harder traditional or, 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 or legacy news of having that personality. Right. And so, I mean, you can't blame them because it's a business. They're judged by their clicks. They're judged by their, their likes, their, their retweets. Yes, ratings. But, I mean, ratings are increasingly, I, I mean, I, I've been at, you know, I, I talk to people who are still in the business, and they say you wouldn't believe how bad the numbers are, but that's not the only metric. So how do we do it? We, we take what are usually normal, you know, what five years ago were nice, informative uh, and conformative news hours, for example, in the evening with CNN. I mean, it doesn't seem like 300 years ago that Larry King had a talk show on CNN and yeah. was was talking to Bobby Darren or something. <laughs> but now, now it's it's each one of those hours is is a pulpit, and that's what they're encouraged to do. I mean, there will be a reckoning for Jeffrey Zucker at some point, maybe in the next life. Well, but, you know, aside from the airtime that he gave Donald Trump in, in 2015. Right. I mean, it, you, know, you track their relationship. It goes back, uh, oh. you know, back to the NBC days. When, uh, Symbiosis of the highest order. Right. I, I don't think you could have, Jeff would not have necessarily gotten the job at CNN if it weren't for Donald Trump. You know, the, the most successful show he had ever had at NBC only gave him more power at NBC to only then lead to, to the job at CNN. It's, and now, obviously, we get these stories. I don't know if, you know, what the, what the future of CNN holds, but it, it'd be curious to see if he continues there and what happens to CNN. You talk about those, yeah. those uh, hours of, of prime time which, you know, the Chris Cuomo hour and the Don Lemon hour and everyone's got the personality, but does that have as much value in the, in the era of Joe Biden? I'm not, I'm not so sure. 
And isn't it, uh, and unrelated to the to the Biden presidency, which is coming, folks, I've got news for you if you're hiding in the, the Wake Island caves, um, is the reality, though, even separate from that, of, of Jeff Zucker running a man as influential and as, as, as far-reaching and as, as, as visionary as Jeff Zucker running smack dab into the realities of, of corporate reality with, with a new parent company, with a new boss, and suddenly finding one. He took, they took a lot of his brief away, and so now he wants to possibly move on. But even he is not immune to this. Right. Right now, it's it's coming for sure. But that, all right, so let's let's go to the other end of it because there, there's I think some some good news of social media in, in ways, and if we kind of maybe brought it out beyond Twitter. But I look at your old home, ESPN, and just in the last let's say six weeks, uh, we had some of the bigger ESPN personalities, some that were more on the you know news side, some that were more on the personality side. Look, I'm thinking of like Dan Lebitard, Trey Wingo, Mike Golick, all leaving ESPN. Uh, Trey Wingo already starting a YouTube show and a and a podcast and got nice sponsorships with it. I don't know, you know, what the financial, you know, situation is, but certainly is already starting to build his own brand and platform on social media on on a digital platform. Dan Lebatard, uh, we don't know exactly what he's doing yet, um, but I imagine that's that may be the direction that he goes as well. Uh, so does it open up opportunities as well for some of these 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 uh, you know, legacy personalities to to continue to to grow their platform that way? Whether it's grow the platform or redefine it, I mean, I, I think, without a doubt, it provides an opportunity. I mean, you know, uh, I've had a number of opportunities cross my radar, and I'm I'm kind of holding the fort right now. I'm talking to some people about a few things. We've we've got some things that we're under discussion. But anything we can announce here? No, okay. no, no. Can't can't be doing that. Uh, nice try though. Um, <laughs> But I, I think there there is so much. I mean, everyone needs content. All the platforms need content. There is so much content out there. How do you choose what to consume as a consumer? My point being that if you if you think that you're going to take uh, the identity, the revenues, and the visibility that you had in legacy media, you know, on a linear television network, and transport it into the digital world, I think that success on that same level is few and far between. How many Joe Rogans are there? Right, right. No. And so you have to recalibrate what you're doing, how you do it, and be happy that, you know, redefine, you know, what the metric of success is. I, I totally agree. I, I, I think Dan Levitard is honestly, I've, I've talked to some people about this. I think it's going to be a really interesting uh, case study because, you know, Dan is not necessarily for everyone, but the people that he's for really love him. And, and he's built this, you know, I don't know exactly how big it is. We may find out how big it is with depending on what he does next. But it, as opposed to an ESPN where, okay, the ratings are going down and less people are listening on the radio. But the threshold was very high for success on on digital. If he wants to just have a good business that is just for the you know the fan club, essentially, uh, you probably can do that and find success that way. Exactly. And Bill Simmons, I mean, was yeah. probably a pioneer in that regard. Um, you know, and has you know the loyalty, that empathy that people feel uh, you know for you. That, that, that again, personality. <laughs> And so if, if it's not going to play at eight or nine o'clock in prime time, yeah, you can play on demand on, uh, digitally. But the uh, it, it, I think it's on a different scale. I, th- I think you have to redefine what you, you know, whether the, the, at the end of the day, the revenues are the same, whether what you take home is the same. Maybe they, for some that might be the case. God bless it. Later, we'll talk about stick to sports and the way culture, sports, and media are more intertwined than ever. But first, Lee's tweet that went viral critiquing ESPN over a recent round of layoffs. 
and I don't want to turn this into a bashing, you know, ESPN thing, but uh, you tweeted something uh, in November that I thought yeah, was... Yeah, I really did, didn't I? President got a lot of pickup. Uh, you said that you were trying to remain objective and unemotional as you learned about the ESPN layoffs, and you said that there were countless decades of journalist experience and expertise jettisoned just when we need it most. Enjoy the Disney stock price and your NFL football, uh, which kind of got to a couple of different points there. But uh, I, I guess let me let me ask you first on, on just a, a big scale, what you think the layoffs this particular time, there's been layoffs, you know, at ESPN over the last, you know, let's say four years, uh, some big ones. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, going back seven years, but they, they seem to come in, in two year waves. But yeah. Yeah. So so what does that signal for a giant sports behemoth like ESPN? Let's start there. And then I want to I want to get to the well, other listen, aspect of it. But. The, the people and I know the people in charge and I know them some of them extremely well and all of them to some extent and they're good people and they're in an impossible situation um i think the pandemic just accelerated the change in the sands under all of their feet and they're tasked with looking at the future they listen for all the challenges that are out there on the sports and news landscapes if i were still working in sports i'd want to be at espn because for all the changes that have gone on and will still have to take place in the reformulation and reimagining of the company they're still in the best place uh but it, I, I this last round of layoffs i mean um it hurt because some of the quality of some of the people and investigative producers um uh it, it it just was it, it just really hit me uh, and, and and again it was not the first right. I I I, th- I kind of liken it to like the closing of the Old Testament you know the the first forty plus years of ESPN we can close it now it's it's time to open the New Testament it's a new you know it's a new it's a different company that's it is if you know biblical if it proportions of uh, exactly well yeah <laughs> and who's the Messiah here we can we can have that discussion separately too but if it doesn't fit on your phone it doesn't have relevance. Um, you know, I've seen the stray articles wondering whether, you know, Disney would sell ESPN. I, I There was a time I thought that might have been the case. I don't know anything. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the, the metric here for success for ESPN is, is, is maintaining, if not increasing, their foothold in the National Football League. And those negotiations are well underway. There's a piece recently in the New York Post saying that not a lot's going to change except how much money people pay. But the point is... Uh, They've had to reimagine the company and 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 do it on the fly. And and the you know NFL is is the last proven entity in sports broadcasting that will guarantee you a huge community audience. Now I think that has plateaued, but it's still it's plateaued above where every other sport is. Right. Um, and uh, you know the, the stock price. I mean, basically you got to hit the number, and that's what the it's a business. Nothing's guaranteed. So for forty x years, forty two years, they went in one particular direction. And yes, they were early to the internet and they developed digital channels and digital platforms. But now I think it's, you know, they're putting a lot of the journalism, I think, uh, on ESPN plus, you know, that was behind Dan Levitard. He didn't appreciate the fact that his radio show is being put on, on ESPN plus. Right. Um, I think you have to have some patience there because I mean, you know, if you felt that way about the internet 20 years ago, you would have missed out on, on something big, but it, it's, it is a different company, and 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 um, it's their company, and they're running it very well. And but you, you know, this omelet's going to take a lot of broken eggs, and a lot of eggs have been broken. Yeah, I, I don't remember who it was. Someone told me uh, basically that that everything that happens in the media, particularly in the TV business, happens for one of three reasons: does it rate really well, does it win awards, or is it important? And is it important? You know, is obviously that's a little bit more yeah. subjective, um, but. 
you wonder, even do those last two categories even matter as much in an era where, like for an ESPN, everything has to be at such a big scale that does it rate almost outweighs everything else? You know, I was saying this back in, in March and April. Um, they do a lot of speaking with college classes and teaching. And and I was telling folks then, and it's we've seen it played out as the pandemic hit, you're seeing television production change in front of your eyes. For years, Steve, so much of TV sports production was done at a level and 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 with resources and expense simply not simply, but primarily, I mean, it really would tickle your visceral uh, you know, instincts the best to impress the other people in sports television. Wow, look at that effect. Oh, my God, that's an 8K camera they're using in the end zone. How many cameras did they have on that game? That's and all of a sudden, yeah. yeah, but all of a sudden it all changed. And we found out, for example, I mean, I can recall having to, you know, getting into uh, not arguments, but heated discussions. I can get this guest for my outside the line segment and show, but I can only get him on FaceTime. We can't have him on FaceTime. I mean, come on. That that ship sailed. Right. Uh, for several years now, ESPN, for example, has been producing MLS games with the uh, the control room back in Bristol. And and with that, with that, you know, a lot of a lot of games are now being announced offset. My point is, out of necessity, grew the reality that there's a lot of money here that can be saved, and that the old bars of success, I think, have you know, the 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 line of acceptability has been lowered. You right. know, and what says it more than rate rate this room on Twitter? <laughs> you know. Um, and awards, yeah, I, I know people who are absolutely obsessed with awards, and they're very nice, and some of them are extremely political and bear no re- relation to reality when you look at the, the things that are being honored. Um, but they mean a lot to the people. When you get your first one, it's outstanding, mm-hmm. and it means a lot to your family. Um, and it impresses, again, impresses just like those productions, impresses outsiders. But you're right. I think there's been an absolute shakedown in in, in, in sports television production in that regard. And people aren't sitting at home saying, hey, is that a super slow-mo on camera seven? <laughs> Do you think they've got 15 cameras on this game? Right. I mean, i got to tell you, the other night, I was watching Kirk Herbstreet, who had uh, was uh, testing positive for COVID, do that semifinal. You know, Chris Fowler's at the game. I mean, Herbie is such an exceptional broadcaster. And I was wondering going into this, geez, you know, I've heard people call games from studios before. You just the same. You wouldn't have known it. I mean, he is such an absolute pro. Um, and there he is sitting at his home, and I think in, in, in Nashville, and, and Chris is at the game, and they're measuring. I mean, that's absolute perfection. But you don't get that all the time. But that's even a game as important as that, if needed to be, could be produced off-site. Right. Well, yeah. And I want to get to, to sort of the, the, the way pandemic has changed sports and sports media um, in a second. But let me, let me stick with the business for a second, because sure. um, Barstool Sports, I, I think, has been been really interesting just for the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, it's sports culture more broadly. Um, but they what they've done more recently with like the Barstool Fund, uh, the way of, of, you know, raising now uh, as of this recording, 18 million dollars for small businesses in America, giving them it to directly uh, and then also. Also, all of this happening for the most part on Twitter, talk about FaceTime. I mean, it, it, you know, FaceTime, really powerful videos between Dave Portnoy and, and the, the business owners who are getting the money. Um, and, I, and I wonder if some of the signals, just how close to their own audience or to, to 
to people around the country, it feels that they are. They're, they're, there's a closeness uh, that, that, that it, do, it doesn't feel as much of an arm's length as other, other kinds of more produced broadcasting feels. I absolutely agree. And I, I used to say about ESPN, having been there since the third day, that other networks have viewers, but no other networks have fans. And we had that, mm, that, yeah. that simpatico and that bond and that allegiance with people. Um, and I think, when, you know, Barstool, even some of their content, you know, specifically two, three years ago were such that, you know, ESPN started an alliance with yeah. them or on a show and then, and then walked away. I was in, in a group of talent meeting when some of that came to light and it was, you know, it, it was a dicey situation. But what Portnoy has done and, and, and what those, the, the, you know, they, they have, they have branded themselves magnificently and they've caught this populist ethic in the country at the same time when populism is all in all the water supply. So that doesn't hurt either. But you're right. The idea that, you know, we're in this together, like it might, it's a small slice, but I didn't mean, I didn't realize the number was that large. That, that That's outstanding. I, regardless of what you think about some of the aspects of some of the things that have been produced under their banner, you have to salute that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they, you know, between them, they've obviously found a niche. They, there's obviously the outkick people who have kind of found a niche yeah. on the you know, political right though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, I don't think Barstool's political, but I mean, at the outkick thing, I mean, when you when you see them at the White House, <laughs> you know, before the election, and you understand exactly. Listen, I I interviewed uh, George Bush forty one on Air Force One about nine days before the nineteen ninety two election because oh, wow. we we're doing a story on sports and the presidency, and the only reason they they were trailing in the polls, and they invited us. So I mean, so that that that's a constant from any White House to try and you know seem like every man talking about sports. Yeah, Obama did his March Madness brackets uh, with ESPN back. Every year, though, I knew the game and knows the game. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed sports and the media? That's next. But first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas, featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscription, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. We're going to get back to Bob in a minute, but first I wanted to go through the Fourth Watch newsletter's top five media moments of 2020. I wrote these up, and if you would like to find them, you can go to fourthwatch.media to subscribe. The first, the media's arrogant coronavirus coverage and the death of expertise. Second, the rise of the independence, the substackization of journalism. Look at Matt Iglesias, Glenn Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan, Matt Taibbi, all who have left and gone independent to substack. The third one, Joe Rogan's mega deal with Spotify, but also the signaling of the crumbling of legacy media influence. Joe Rogan made all that $100 million completely independently. The fourth, New York Times' purge of, quote, unacceptable column enablers as a warning shot for the purge newsrooms. And finally, number five, the conservative media conundrum, which is about to grow exponentially when Donald Trump leaves office. Those are the top five media moments of 2020. Disagree? Let me know. Back to Bob Lee. Okay, so let's talk about the pandemic, um, because it does seem, you mentioned Kirk Kerbstreet. What are the, I guess, when going back to like March, this happens and, and obviously things shut down, the game shut down, the, the, everything is, is different. Um, but it felt like maybe it would be this period of time and then we go back to normal. Um, 
But I wonder if you think there's any real long-term ramifications of thinking, well, you know, we did it this way and it worked kind of. And uh, oh, I mean, the NFL yes. draft, I, I think about, I mean, how much that cheaper was it? That was a great triumph. I, I know. That was and, tremendous. And how much cheaper was it to, to do? It's, no, I absolutely salute what the NFL accomplished there in concert with ESPN. It was yeah. uh, coordinating produced by my good friend, Seth Markman. Trey hosted it. Um, we had Seth's uh, come in to speak digitally with our class at Seton Hall about that. And it was great. But a lot of things have changed. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think, and again, what have you done? You have personalized people, just the same way people feel a personal connection with Barstool. What's the, <laughs> I saw him coaching on Sunday, Cliff Klingberry. What's the image in your head? From that draft, his house. Yeah, he has beautiful. this, you know, that, that you know, the mesa out there, and and you know, thinking to myself, I wonder if he's got somebody cleaning the windows of that house today. I mean, but that's great. And, and uh, anecdotally, you've heard that a lot of coaches said, you know, this is pretty good. There's no mystery. I mean, we can do all this on a conference call. I don't have to hand the card in, but. A lot has changed, but I also, you know, I, I think there's a reality when the green eye shades look at what they spent and saved, most importantly, on television production, you know, over, you know, from March until December of, of, of 2020, they've already instituted this. I mean, the changes have already been made. But I, I think the other thing to think about as far as issues that have changed is the link or the bond between fans, the public, and their sports. Um, and this is not just something reflected necessarily in smaller diminished seasons and lower TV ratings and whatnot. Um, but I, I wonder, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to filter my own experience out of it because I became a cord cutter in the middle of all of this as we uh, relocated and I discovered the joys of YouTube TV it used to be at halls of Bristol. If you said the word cord cutter, <laughs> they, they would take you out and flog you like it was Singapore. Um, now it's a necessity. But my point is, I think, I mean, I'm sitting here right now, sitting on three websites, trying to find a county where I, you know, my wife and I can get vaccinated. <clears throat> uh, we spent much of the summer of of last year making sure the healthcare workers working with my dad were, you know, properly tested and, you know, and all right. of that. When you're in existential mode, as families, as a society, um, your pod, your town, uh, how much do sports really mean? I mean? Certainly people miss them, but I don't know that they will be back to the uh, to the same level of interest, or at least they will have slipped these these games uh, on a list of priorities. I think we have discovered a lot about ourselves, what what interests us, what what's important to us. Um, and I, I think that is something that, you know, you, you can't quantify in a rights deal and you can't quantify in Nielsen ratings yet. Right. Yeah. I, I, I wonder about it too. I, I, I look, obviously the ratings have been down across the board, you know, NFL, NBA, you know, golf. Uh, I'm a big, uh, you know, golf uh, fan. I, I, and, and I, I was, they were one of the first sports to come back and I, I was like, you know, loving this, but it not, it was not like everyone jumped to golf because it was it was the only sport going on it really but also like one of the lasting images for me of 2020 is going to be cardboard cutout fans in the stadiums it's just such a weird uh, and even now obviously you know the nba is now going to do a whole season at least for you know a while with no fans and and most nfl games and we'll see what what baseball does when it comes back and uh i i wonder if if that has has that same kind of lasting effect for you or when we can get back in the stadium do they get packed up again well uh 
Sure, the fans will come back. Um, but I, I mean, I was talking to a, a friend who works at a pretty senior level with a legacy NFL franchise that goes back years and decades and has a lot of trophies to show. And he told me that when at the time, this is before the season, when everything was an unknown. And, you know, the NFL claimed that they played the regular season. I mean, they got through it. I mean, don't ask the people in Cleveland about the time they, what they lost their entire running back court, still had to play. <laughs> but this individual told me, he said, you know, we have a decades-long waiting list for our uh, for our season tickets. And I think he really, he not feared because he works in, in another area of the business, but he wondered and sort of feared whether people will discover that why am I paying X to go to the game, especially in the NFL, it's extraordinarily expensive, uh, and freeze my butt off in the Northern climbs and outdoor stadia when I, you know, suddenly there's the game. Right. It's on my, it's on my Samsung the bathroom's there. There's no line. You know, the beer in the fridge is not $9. Um, and so I, I, there, there's going to be an element of that. But, you know, uh, to get to, you know, to one of my game for my beloved Mets, yeah, we'd love to try and do that. And, you know, that sense of community. Um, but I, I just think if sports comes out this out of this and we look back on it in five years and said at, at worst they plateaued, I think that's a victory. A yeah. victory. Yeah, I mean, we're not even talking about the tens of billions of dollars in revenue that were gone and they'll never see again. Right, right. No, I mean the 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 lasting change on that, and I, I guess a lot depends on what happens this year uh, with with how quickly we can come back um, and and have some semblance of normalcy by by the end of the year. Um, you know, nothing. We want to thank Warren Harding for inventing that word. <laughs> what is that? Normalcy. Normalcy, yeah. <laughs> Return to normalcy. That's what we're working for here. Uh, I, I don't, we can't, I, I, a couple more sports things, but I, I don't, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to just ask you your take on the whole sports and culture, you know, the, the shift towards, towards a more cultural conversation when it comes to sports. You know, I, I think, I think we're way past quote unquote stick to sports. And I, my, my friend, uh, Richard, Deitch, Richie Deitch. I know him well. Uh, The Athletic now, a long time from Sports Illustrated, uh, loves doing the whole stick to sports, you know, uh, uh, making fun of people who are are not sticking to sports on any side. Um, You know, I think it's become more than more of a talking point um, on the right in recent years, although, uh, you know, it's but this idea of, of does that connect to any sort of decline in interest or ratings? when it comes to the media or when it comes to the games. And I'm curious your take on, on that, if that, if that has any real effect. I think among some people it does, but I think if you're a thoughtful individual who does not want to see, you know, see as someone kneeling during the national anthem, you have to ask yourself, and I don't count myself among that, that number. Um, you have to ask yourself, why is that happening? You have to understand why these issues are existential to African-American athletes, young men, uh, d- despite their, their their incredible wealth or, you know, see, see the issues, especially in the wake of, of the George Floyd uh, killing this past summer last year. Um, but I yes, I, I, I think there is still that because when, you know, there still is that expectation when you tune into sports. Well, we just get finished about talking about the affinity that people have for sports and wanting to sit at that game again and to lose yourself and then not have to worry about, you know, whether, you know, all the other issues in your life, sports as an escape. And then when it ceases to be an escape and the social commentary aspect of it is so front and center and I don't want to say relentless, but 
certainly part of the conversation all the time. Uh, it does two things. Possibly, it, it will have that effect of being off-putting to some people who've got to work their way through that. And I wonder whether it also, you know, if you keep hearing about something constantly, are you educating people? Or are you numbing them to the idea? Right. I don't know the answer to that. And I'm a 65-year-old white guy, so that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> and obviously, there are a lot of people that feel differently, and I absolutely respect that. Um, because I, you know, when I, if I get stopped by the cops, it's a whole different experience. And, and I, I, I think people need to look what this whole culture needs is a little bit of grace and critical thinking and nuance, none of which we can find necessarily when we turn on cable TV or our phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of uh, that humility. No one really, uh, no introspection happening now, but, but I also think it belies like, you know, one of the, the big successes of what you did with outside the lines was not to just talk about the X's and O's of the game, but to tell the stories behind it and, and yeah. to talk about the, the cultural ramifications, I think, of sports. And it was maybe from a different perspective, but if that was what made it interesting as well for a lot of people. Well, thank, yeah, thank you. We tried to do that. We did a number of different things, but it was, you know, we were kind of like the Switzerland on the program schedule <laughs> right, right. with everything else raging around us. You know, you knew if you came to our program, you, were, you, were, you, were, you weren't signing up for scores and highlights. And so we have that advantage. It's kind of a self-selected audience, if you will. Uh, I, mean, I remember we did a primetime special about seven or eight years ago on the N-word. Now, and I was talking about this. I was speaking in NYU a couple of months ago. I was describing the show, and I, I, I didn't think ahead to send them the link to it. I have to go find it. But I, I said, now, if you were to pull that show off off the shelf and, and watch it now, you you... you it would be painfully creaky, old, um, and timid, and only seven or eight years old. But at the time, at the time, in the context of that moment, in the conversations of that moment, um, it was an important and volatile topic to take on. Yeah. Now it almost, it almost seems, you know, like like something out of the Onion or SNL. <laughs> well, that's how fast now, everything and, is moving. I mean, you know, exactly. Like that were, and yeah, so uh, you know. It, that's why context is so important. I mean, it's easy to jump on people. You know, it's, you know, the joke I make or the reality or the statement I make is, you know, you look at the AFI, American Film Institute, lists of great um, film comedies and uh, Blazing Saddles is on it. I think it's in the top five or ten. You can watch that movie now and you can laugh at it, but you can't make the movie now. Right. Right. Oh, no. Yeah. That's that, where we're at. You can't make movies that you made, you know, three or four years ago, probably now. It's uh, the moving so fast. Uh, or you can, and they're just not going to be well-received. Um, but then you have someone like Tom Rinaldi, uh, who I was, you know, interested in. Gleaves ESPN uh, gets a very big deal from, from yeah. Fox and is more in that Switzerland model, but telling really good, interesting stories um, and not wading into that kind of he's not this big personality who's tweeting up a storm uh in that way he is he is he's one of the great guys in the industry and i he, he wrote a book a few years ago we had him on the show and i and i, I remember the intro I, I wrote for him uh they said those of us who make our living with words are humbled by what this guy does with words and and he, he is he is that good um and I know one, his, one of his professors from Columbia School of Graduate Journalism is a good friend of mine, Sandy Padway, and we were just talking about Tom the other day. Um, Tom is, um, can find the humanity in, 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 in some great stories as an outstanding interviewer. And, but again, uh, from what he has said publicly, and you know, he's not a, not a guy with much guile, if any, so I'm, I'm going to believe that this is what's driving his decision there, is Fox's suite of 
rights, the Super Bowl, the World Cup. It hurts me to say that after we did so many with yeah. ESPN, but then they, they got it. Uh, I guarantee you they're not making money with it, but God bless them. Uh, and so it's major events. And that that drove Tom's decision. He, he was in a rare position. And from what I can you know, interpolate and read between the lines of what the company said on, in Bristol, uh, they wish him luck. But, uh, you know, they, they weren't going to go, you know, beyond a certain number. Right. And that's the reality there. We're going to end with the value of trust in the media and the fourth watch lightning round. Six questions in about 60 seconds. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about a media tell. In poker, there's something called tells, little signs and signals that show what a player has in their hand. In journalism, there are tells too, like this tweet from CBS News's Paula Reed. She tweeted a video saying, why is it still so hard to get a COVID test? I asked the Surgeon General about long lines and days-long wait for tests. Reed's tweet is a 95-second video. The tweet is a video that contains a question, an answer, a follow-up question, a follow-up answer. The exchange is actually respectful and substantive, but the tweet itself is the tell. It only references the question asked. If you're a journalist who's interested in providing facts and truth for your audience, the public, the questions you ask are completely unimportant. Questions only exist to elicit answers, and answers are what the public cares about. But with our media today, and particularly on Twitter, questions rise in power. Reed asked the Surgeon General about what, how to make testing more accessible. Adams described at-home tests being developed. He described a surge testing sites. He's personally overseeing them. He described the different states. She then asked about vaccines, and he described the process, noted where the vaccines are going, specifically for healthcare workers and nursing home residents. This is substantive. But Reed's not really interested in the answers. She wants her Twitter followers to know that she asked the question, and that's not journalism. Now, back to Bob Lee. Let me ask you yeah. more broadly. Um, you uh, said in your, I guess it was your, your tweet, your statement uh, when you retired from, from ESPN. My manifesto. I found it in a tweet. Uh, <laughs> it was a very uh, substantive tweet, though. Um, you, you said, I've been gifted by our viewers and consumers with a precious commodity, your trust. And you described the privilege of being invited into homes. And trust is something I, I write a lot about in, in Fourth Watch. It feels like in the last four years... Uh, in many instances, people that I talk to on on the left as well, certainly on the right, trust is is in decline in in the in the media industry uh, for a variety of reasons. And I wonder what you think about that aspect of it. What is that doing? What kind of long term ramifications does that have for for the business? I got to tell you, uh, one of the reasons I I I must have spoken at well more than a half dozen universities this past semester, and we're getting geared up here for the spring semester, and I do a lot of work with Seton Hall, as I said. Uh, I just want to try and have a part of the conversation to those that want to come into the industry to make my thoughts known about, you know, these classic legacy, quote unquote, old school values have great, great value and application. Because right now, the entire definition of what is journalism, what is acceptable journalism, has been, you know, it's been torn up and, and reconstructed, um, you know, what's what's profitable journalism? Well, you know, it's what, what works. Sometimes that's in conflict with what, you know, uh, you and I grew up believing we, we should be doing. Right. Um, you know, trust, it, it comes from, it, it starts with a tweet. I mean, if, if, if you're going to tweet something partisan, uh, you know, look, 
it, does it take any great courage to, to tweet something about Donald J. Trump's administration of the, of the United States over the last four years? No, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty obvious. But if you're going to put something out there on an issue of personality or something political, fine. It's your God-given right, First Amendment, and you always have the right to do it. But you're going to piss off half the people that follow you as a journalist, right. whether it's in sports journalism. And, and so what's the point? You want to build. Do you want to build your brand that way? You want to build your brand, yourself, your voice, your image, um, as being somebody who's going to ask the tough questions to who's ever in the seat. You know, uh, I, I was watching last night Anderson Cooper. You know, he's going down a list of all the Republican uh, senators as you and I are having this conversation, who had indicated they weren't going to vote to certify the election um, or challenge the certification of the election, and they invited them on. Um, you know, I noticed that uh, CNN just the other day, uh, when running Ron DeSantis's colloquy with a CNN reporter, extended DeSantis's answer an extra thirty seconds beyond what they did yesterday, giving a lot more context to what what he had to say. Hmm. Um, I, I, I still await, you know, somebody challenging Andrew Cuomo about you know his issues in New York State. You know, it's so. Um, that's where the trust issues come up. I mean, why? You know, listen, the dominant liberal media if you say that you get pointed out and scoffed at and and, and ostracized some places um it's, it just do your job if you just do your job well uh there should be some measure of success in that yeah yeah it's just and and so much has been wrong uh and it's okay i mean i, I this pandemic the last year you know it, it, it it's a totally unique situation. I, I don't fault anyone for getting things wrong. It, it's but well, there's been no roadmap for our leaders at all. Right. I mean, you can jump on a, every governor about this, what's going on with the vaccination and whatnot and how they handle it. But nobody, no college president, nobody had a model for this. And the same thing in newsrooms. Right. But eventually we all got our sea legs, both as citizens and as journalists and as leaders. And from that point forward, there should have been some you know, you, you can, I think, judge how, how people have done their job. Yeah, not not up to perfect standards, I would say, uh, over the last six months or so. Uh, all right, uh, Bob, let me let me go to the lightning round here. Six questions for you. Where were you born? Perth Amboy, New Jersey. All right, New Jersey. Pearl of the Orient. Love it. Me too. Um, you were the longtime anchor of ESPN's Outside the Lines. What was one benefit and one cost of that role? Uh, the benefit was talking to uh, an incredible array of fascinating people and working with the greatest team in television. Uh, the cost was putting your opinion on the shelf when sometimes you just scream to give it. Who's someone who was a mentor for you? Mentor for me. Um, I learned so much about broadcasting, just watching Jim Simpson, an early colleague, and George Grand, an early colleague in the early days, and uh, my cousin. Um, the late Russell Baker, former columnist for the uh, New York Times Pulitzer Prize winner, um, whose writing always inspired me. And just not just what he wrote, but how he wrote it. Excellent. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? <laughs> uh, Keith Olbermann. I mean, our politics are polar opposites. There was a time when we weren't tight. Uh, we haven't spoken in a little bit, but uh, Keith and I enjoy bantering back and forth on text and phone and email. All right. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Mina Kimes is uh, smart, is just knows the NFL inside and out, um, writes well, 
carries a show and I, anything she's, she, she was the first host of the ESPN podcast, sports center podcast. And uh, I just, I just enjoy watching her at all times. And I, I, having done a few things with her, I just, I know how whip smart she is. Yeah. She's great. What's one prediction for the media? That the, the boring Biden administration will, will test journalism's new model. It's business model, it's practices model, and uh, it's ethics model. And uh, we'll see uh, what platforms respond the best to that. Bob, thanks so much. This was great. Appreciate it. Steve, this is this is so much neater than typing back and forth to each other. It's, it's even, you know, nice and easy. Well, that was fun, too. But thank you. Absolutely. I, it was absolutely my pleasure, Steve. Thank you. And best of luck to you in the podcast. Thanks to Bob Lee for joining me here. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Go to fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. Remember, you can download, follow, like, rate, review this podcast produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with Tara Palmieri. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.